I think uh, the Blarney Stone may have made me just a little sick. So we'll we'll see. Because <laughs> I gave it a big old wet kiss. Oh my God, you went there. You totally went there. Oh, I wasn't going to say anything. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the Geek in Review, the podcast designed to cover the legal information profession with a slant toward technology and management. I'm Marlene Gaybauer. And I'm Greg Lambert. And Marlene, we're both back from our individual vacations. Well, I guess for you, it was a work slash vacation. Yeah, but I'll take I'll take it. <laughs> yeah, I love those. So I went to Ireland and you did a presentation at ARC UK. So how did that go? Well, I'll say vacation was very much needed. I haven't been to London really in quite a long time. And it was pretty cool to see all the changes. I lived there for a stint in college and I forgot how much I really enjoyed simply experiencing that city, just moving around in the city. Mm. Did get to do some sightseeing and I also got to stop in our London office to say hello. We did get to experience firsthand many of the protests going on in the city at that time. And even though security kept us from seeing some of the sites, I was really quite pleased that things were so peaceful. Um, We also had the opportunity to be really immersed in the D-Day celebrations. There was lots of coverage on television and people were discussing it a lot. I know we celebrated here too, but it seems closer somehow being so near to the actual location of the battle. Yeah, I bet it does. It was a great experience at ARC, and I am so glad that they gave me the opportunity to attend and present a keynote on innovation, big data, and KM. It was so interesting to connect with the people in the audience and understand that they were really wrestling with the same concerns that we see, things like adoption, communication, information governance, and data privacy. But hey, you know, enough about me. (laughs) How was your vacation? I saw that you kissed the Blarney Stone. Yes, I did. As if you don't have a surplus of Blarney already. <laughs> yeah, Blarney, I think is how you how you uh, Blarney. <laughs> uh, so I have to tell you, I, I loved Ireland. It was the first time I was there, and I know my friends uh, got sick of me posting everything on Facebook. So I'm pretty sure a lot of them unfollowed me by the end of my trip. I did want to say one serious thing, though, that caught my attention while I was in Belfast in Northern Ireland. I'm I'm not going to get political, but I thought Belfast was an amazing city. Remember, this was one of the four Bs that you weren't supposed to visit because of terrorism not that long ago. And the the other three were Bosnia, Beirut, and Baghdad. Yeah, I I do remember. It it was one of the reasons I never managed to get up there when... I I lived in, in London. So my wife mentioned to me something that, that has really just stuck in the back of my head ever since. And so we did a tour of City Hall there in Belfast. We walked in, we toured the building, we went around to all of the displays that they had for the city's culture and history. We turned around and we walked out. There was no security. There was no metal detectors. There was nothing. And I just want you to just try to do that in any city hall or courthouse in the United States. Just try it. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. Okay. So that's, that's all I'm going to say. But if you ever get a chance to visit uh, Belfast, do it. And not just the city hall, but they have this great museum on the Titanic, which was actually built there and launched from Belfast. 
Well, it is definitely on my list. <laughs> so, Marlene, we're going to flip the show this week and do what? The, I know. It's like, it's like flipping the classroom. We're doing changing that. it up. We're changing it up. <laughs> we are going to do our interview first, and then we're going to follow that up with our information inspirations. We just thought we'd try a little something different. If you're listening, let us know what you think. Uh, should the interview come first or should the inspirations come first? So you can tweet us at, at GayBauerM or at Glambert, or you can leave us a message at the Geek and Review hotline at 713-487-7270. We're talking with Matt Holman from Filament this week. For anyone who's gone to an ILTA conference in the past decade, you'll know Matt from the giant whiteboards out there where they ask a specific question for you to add your thoughts, and then they draw a picture describing your comments to create a story. It's really pretty cool stuff. It is, it is. We'll be covering some of the ways that he makes conferences and meetings more palatable, starting off with no PowerPoints allowed. No PowerPoints. <laughs> I like <laughs> and it already. Yeah, me too. <laughs> and how to tell a story to help win over all those people in the middle. Yeah, it's a great interview. So let's just go ahead and jump right in. Joining us today is Matt Homan, who is the founder and CEO of Filament out of St. Louis, which I know uh, Matt's preparing for a Game 7 this week between uh, the Blues and uh, the Bruins, so good luck to the Blues there, Matt. Thank you. <laughs> so Matt and I go way back to the old days when he was with uh, Lex Think, and of course, uh, we've kind of known each other through our blogging and tweeting over the years, so Matt, welcome to the Geek and Review. I'm happy to be here. It's not a secret to our listeners that my mom doesn't understand what I do. So how do you describe what it is that you and the folks do there at Filament? So we help smart people think together better. We do meetings, conferences, retreats, offsites. And what's interesting about our business model, and it's pretty unique, is that when people come to us, although we do go on the road, we don't let people rent our space. We've got a 20,000 square foot innovation space in downtown St. Louis, and they've got to buy the entire meeting from us. So we not only host their meetings, we design, we facilitate. Uh, I have an artist who draws live in every session. We ban PowerPoint. Uh, we're really trying to give them a better meeting, whether they would title it a conference, an offsite, a strategy session, a process design sprint, or any one of a mix of those things. We do it all as a turnkey offering here at Filament, and we allow them to focus on solving problems versus presenting things. What type of uh, businesses use your service? It's been actually the best part about this business is, as you know, and I'm sure we'll get into it, I, I'm a recovering lawyer and it's been a lot of my time really beginning this uh, career doing work with lawyers. But here we get to work with some of our city's best nonprofits. We get to do some really cool work with some of our biggest companies here in town. And then we also get to play with uh, some fun things that we get to do ourselves. So the Cardinals are a customer of ours, for example. But then Purina is a really big customer, Emerson, Ameren, our public utility. Uh, but then we get to do stuff with United Way because we have space. It even changes the capacity to deliver services that would otherwise be cost prohibitive for nonprofits. We're doing stuff, a lot of stuff in equity and social justice. And it's been a really neat kind of run when you look at our breadth of clients. Uh, they're all over the board. So Matt, I noticed you recently tweeted about storytelling when it came to things like new projects, initiatives, or ideas. The story for those who will probably love what we're doing, the story for those who will likely hate it, the story for those who don't care either way. 
you mentioned specifically to focus on those who don't care either way. Why is that? I think that we, we get so focused on, uh, it's easy to tell the stories to people who love what we're doing, who are like us. And then we think, oh, then we've also got to tell the story to the objectors, the people who are going to hate it, try and get them on board. But there's this big middle, right? Whether it's 70%, 80%, 50% who get ignored. And when you think about change management, and I'd love to talk about that in a bit as well, we spend all of our time focusing on either end of the spectrum, but we don't focus on the middle. And so how do you get someone who might be uh, inclined to perhaps go either way uh, to give them the push you want to give them? And, and so those stories of, I know it's, you, you kind of hate our technology as an example, but you're okay with it, would kind of like something better. Let's have a better story about that versus uh, selling all the super cool bells and whistles or trying to convince someone that why they need to change their entire workflow or the way that they think about things. Yeah, so it's sort of like, you know, you're, you're getting the people in, the, in the, the thick of the curve. So, you know, you have the 20% of, of people who will adopt things right away and then the 20% who will never do it. You're looking for that meat in the middle, right? Right, and it doesn't mean that you don't have to tell the other stories as well, but we tend to build maybe one or two. You know, the stories, the stories telling is such an interesting thing for me because if you think about the oldest story, uh, maybe the second oldest story, boy meets girl, boy loses girl, boy and girl reunite and live happily ever after. Uh, that story is an 800-page Russian novel. It is a 22-minute sitcom or it's the 15-second interlude Ms. Pac-Man, right? It's the exact <laughs> same story. And so even if the story is the same, the attention your audience has to pay, the medium in which they'll consume it become really, really crucial. Uh, and then to add to that, the traditional, and I think this is a managing partner problem, we certainly see it with the CEOs we work with, the I've told my group of people once and expect a complete uh, 100% transmission of that perfect message throughout the entire organization with no loss of fidelity and within five minutes. And so the storytelling becomes so crucial because you've got to think about all those things and then figure out ways to tell the stories over and over. It's great. I just think about Picard, you know, make it so. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, <You> know? <laughs> that's right. At, at some point, you, you might be able to get two layers down where they are making it so. And then you hit the person like, why the hell are we making it so? <laughs> <laughs> Wait, I don't understand. Back in February, you posted 10 rules of legal innovation, which, you know, isn't that big of a deal. You know, we have a lot of people post these sorts of things all the time. What was interesting was that this was actually a reprint of the same set of rules that you published in 2008. <laughs> Does this mean you were ahead of the game in 2008 or that the legal industry is still not innovating efficiently? Yeah, I'd like to say yes to both. Uh, because, because back in 2008, and I know Greg can remember this because that was when we were both in the thick of early legal blogging, uh, there was a lot of reaction to it. Right? There was a lot of people who were saying, oh, this is great. I totally agree. We're ready to innovate. But the problem, and I found this to my detriment over the years, is that it's great to be ahead of the curve, but it is not profitable unless you can find other people who are willing to pay for the privilege of joining you there. And so this really cool idea of here's what we should think about is nothing unless you can figure out what levers to pull and, and find people who will help you pull them to get people to where they need to be. There's a, a great quote. It talks about the, where the future is. It's William Gibson, I think, the science fiction author, right? The future uh, is already here. It's just unevenly distributed. Mm -hmm. And that's yep. totally true. And all the futures that law firms in particular are talking about are futures their customers have been thinking about implementing, engaging with, and in some cases, even discarding three years ago, five years ago, 10 years ago. So, uh, being being an innovative lawyer or ahead of the curve in legal is a pretty 
pretty gentle curve and a pretty low bar. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I no comment from the peanut gallery. I just I hear these guys both just, nodding and like yep. Yeah, yeah, yep. Yeah. <laughs> it's like no argument here. <laughs> So Matt, you admit that you suffer from idea surplus disorder. Is this like the Buddhist monkey mind where your mind is very restless with the go button is constantly on? Do you consider it a good or bad thing? And how do you manage it? It's, it's both. And, and it, is, it is good and it's challenging. I think one of the, when I talk about idea surplus disorder, it was originally coined uh, as my synonym for the shiny, shiny syndrome, the ooh, squirrel sort of thing that many of us have. But I think that it is Profoundly a slightly different thing in that there are some people who can't get past and this is the monkey mind Who can't get past all the distractions of the present? To focus on the future to do things that move their career forward to make their families better to stop procrastinating For me the idea surplus disorder is a similar affliction in that I keep thinking of things that are Really great ideas that might need that implementation time Or that the world might not be ready for or at least not willing to pay for. The way that I've managed it is, first of all, just kind of step one is admit that you have a problem. My name's Matt Holman and I have idea surplus disorder, right? <laughs> uh, but the second thing is that, and this is something, again, I reposted just recently on our Filament blog, though I had written it 10 years ago or so for the non-billable hour, was something that I was using in my practice about quarantining your best ideas. So if you have that great idea, Set it aside for a little bit, whether you want to use a form, whether I always use my secretary's uh, tickler file, the every day and then the 12 months of the year. And I would have an idea and I would say, hey, bring this back to me in 60 or 90 days. And the truth would be one of two things would happen. I would either have moved on from it and it wouldn't be as fresh and amazing as I originally thought, which was a perfect outcome. It's like, oh, I don't need to do that anymore. But the second thing is that sometimes it would come back to me over and over again in my head. I'd wake up at night thinking about it, and that was a signal to start working on it sooner. But that being able to just know that you've got plenty of things to do, and there's very few ideas, and I don't mean this in a super negative way, but especially in legal, that can wait. Mm -hmm. there, there's not a whole lot of, oh my goodness, I've just figured out a brand new compensation scheme for law firms that removes all of the challenges around collaboration, sharing clients, adoption of technology, productivity. I've had that idea, as have many others, every year for the last 25. Right. And the industry's still not ready for it. So being able to put a pause on ideas is a chance for you to say, hey, uh, let me come back to it in a fairly short amount of time, but it also gives me the permission to go back to the things that are most important to work on right now. Yeah, and that kind of reminds me of what you said earlier, what Marlene was referencing was you've got that middle piece of the group of people that either don't or do care can go either way. I, I heard someone on another podcast, I think it was Tom Bruce, they talked about there's there's a lot of bones in the technology graveyard of ideas that were ahead of their time. Right. And I think that's kind of the same thing. You got to do what the market is ready to, to move on. So yeah, that's a, a good way to put it. I think that I think if I can just one to tie those two things together, one thing that is the coolest part about our work is that we have so many people from different industries coming in giving us their meetings. And so they give us way more permission to try things in real time with them than we might otherwise, especially if we're going on site. And so one thing that we've really started to to focus in on over the last six months or so, 
and I've been introducing with our clients is how do we bridge that storytelling with a new idea? How do we get those two things to fit together? And so instead of change management, where you end up with people after an initiative or a product is built or an initiative launch, then they spool up and say, now let's convince everybody to do this, right? The ship has sailed. It's all done. Now just use this crappy product that we've built for you. We've been uh, using this term change advocacy teams. Build the team at the very beginning whose job isn't to influence the product necessarily. Uh, They're not designers. They're not coders. They're not technologists. But there's people, there are a team whose job it is to, in parallel, build better stories for what that change needs to be. Finding the, the advocates, kind of smoothing over some of the bumps with the detractors, uh, and building those stories for different levels in an organization. And so that change advocacy model, and that's why we call it the chat team, change advocacy team, because it's really hard to say change advocacy over and over and over again, mm-hmm. is you build that chat team and you start to have some of these conversations about change uh, at the beginning and through the middle of a project, not just at the end. And that's a way to kind of smooth over some of those innovation hurdles you have in many organizations. Yeah, because it's, it's interesting because you get you know, you get the feedback right up front and, and during the process and you can, you can basically be agile and make changes as you're going through the process rather than wait till the end when you're doing this rollout and then you hear all the feedback and it's like, oh, now it's, now it's too late, right? That's right. There's an old Mitch Hedberg joke, the late comedian. He would say, uh, I don't have a girlfriend, but I do have someone who'd be really upset if she heard me say that right now. <laughs> and, and that as a joke, we tell that joke all the time, not because of the boyfriend-girlfriend dynamic, but because there are people in your organization who don't need to be involved in a project, but would be really upset if they knew that they weren't. And so trying to find some of them and give them a place to do to engage, to do work, to think about things uh, is a really help. And we know that when we ask people about that, like, who should be here? And I share that joke. They're like, oh, Greg should come versus uh, maybe having left them off the invite list. Yeah, it's a really good point because, you know, often we hear that, you know, attorneys feel like that this you know, adoption of new technology and change, you know, this is being done to them. This is a real opportunity to bring people into the room and make them feel included. Right. And, and the problem you're asking them to solve is a hard one. We were doing a law firm retreat a couple months ago for a firm in the South, and the older gentleman, he looked and sounded like Wilford Brimley, a partner who may have needed to retire 20 years ago, but who was still great at what he did, loved the work, loved the challenge, the people of the firm loved him. But we were talking about some of these talent challenges, especially among younger lawyers, retention of women, uh, people of color, et cetera. And he kind of rolled his eyes and just said, this stuff is just really hard. I'm going to be retiring soon. I should leave this for the younger lawyers, right? The managing partner and so on and so forth. And I said to him, I said, you know, when is the last time a client has come into your office with a really novel, hard legal problem? And you said, nope, I'm out. It's too hard for me. And it was at that moment where he started to realize that, oh my God, I love solving hard problems. This is just one that might not uh, get billed every six minutes of my day. But engaging lawyers and telling them that these are hard problems to solve, they're all in. Uh, They just don't get enough opportunity and enough permission to engage with non-billable problem solving in a very consistent way. That gives me some ideas of when I get somebody that says, well, I'm, I'm too close to retirement to start this project and I'll, I'll, I should just ask them, all right, so what's the cutoff age? Should we just cut everyone that's over 65 out of the process or, or what's, what's the cutoff? <laughs> right. And, and, and you should ask them, how many of your clients are you turning away because you're too close to retirement to do their work? 
Yeah, ask him that, Greg. <laughs> I will. Tell me, tell me how that goes. <laughs> on, the, on the inside, I will be asking that question. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I'm in this little tiny clip of this podcast and say, oh, just listen to that for those two minutes. <laughs> tell me what you think. You know, Matt, obviously you have a lot of experience in this space. What are some of the common limitations in creative thinking that that you've come across when dealing with executives? We have a running joke here that, you know, you can't change the mind of a millionaire. So how do you get stakeholders to change their perspective? Well, there, there's, there's some flipping that you've got to make it their idea, right? Which is partially true. Uh, a lot of our work when we do stuff, whether it's firm retreats, whether it's executive meetings, offsites, et cetera, is that we put people in small groups. And so we use, and it seems simple, we use worksheets and other tools and activities and exercises. So they're in smaller groups and they have a chance to surface ideas individually. And what that does in some cases, it removes the impediment to decision-making from all but one group. And so as people come back, you start to see a bit more cohesion than you might if everyone's in the classic U-shaped boardroom tables uh, and the CEO or it just won't stop talking. But another thing that we've seen is that most of the time, this is one of the challenges when leaders lead their own meetings, is they can't play, the, the role they need to play is the disinterested facilitator, but then when they, if they do that and they're good at it, they're depriving the room of their insight. And the room then is like, well, when is, when is Wendy going to talk, right? She's too busy worrying about us going to the bathroom and getting all the voices out on the table. The third thing is that people don't understand the purpose of their meetings, right? Is this meeting to decide something? Is it to get input on something? Is it to think about something? Is it to generate ideas? And so there's all kinds of meeting misbehaviors that happen because everyone walks into the room thinking the day's about something different. And whose responsibility is that? It, it should be the leadership team, right? Not just the leader. And, and that's one of the things we try to help our customers with is, you know, you, you only know what you know, but we, are t- we bring in the Mitch Hedberg girlfriend sort of con- person to those conversations as well and say, you know, what are we trying to accomplish? And we spend the very beginning of our meeting seeing if we're aligned on our purpose. And if we're not, we reset. But it's, it's hard because you just, you assume everyone knows what you know, because the only head you've ever been in it is your own. One other thing that is really hard, and this isn't just leaders, it's everyone, is we tend to underestimate the novelty of our own ideas. So an idea that comes naturally to you, you assume it comes naturally to everyone else. And if your organization isn't already doing it, you assume someone else has thought about it, decided against it because it wasn't worth pursuing. Yet the only person who has had that set of ideas and experiences in your life is you. So your idea could be completely novel. And so we ask a lot about what is a small eye innovation? What are simple things we can try? What are experiments we might do versus what is our next initiative? What is the binder of strategy need to look like that gathers dust for the next five years until we rinse and repeat and do it again? And it is... Uh, it, it the just, bi- I love on the binder of strategy. <laughs> <laughs> I almost want to have one behind me on my shelf here in my office. It just says binder of strategy because... <laughs> We, we, we focus on these five-year plans and it's a box to check. It has nothing to do with reality versus how do we think about making teams more agile, experiment, engage, try little things, uh, make little bets, and then build their process into how do we do that again and again and again and again. I like the, the one part where you talked about you think people share your your ideas and your experiences when again you're you're the only person that's had those ideas and experiences can we talk about 
working humbly versus working in an ego-driven manner or where it's hyper-competitive and what the impacts are of that? It's, it's such a good question because it's, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't come naturally to many people, right? You either think your ideas are great or you think they're terrible. There's very few people who live in the middle of that. And so it's a stretch in towards the middle for nearly everybody. One of the things that we try to do with our customers, especially when they're here, is to point out from time to time when they, and we'll never say you're not acting humble, but uh, there's lots of conversation in this group and most of it's coming from you. Uh, Another question we ask is, you know, everyone brings an elephant in the room. Which one did you bring with you today? (laughs) It, it's so hard, especially when so much of a lawyer's identity, I know that not everyone who's listening to this is, is, or is an attorney or works with attorneys, but so much of their identity is tied to measurements uh, that are not connected with how good they are at what they do. And so you find, I think, a lot of lawyers have a really interesting sense of themselves because they're good at what they're measured at. Uh, and they've been told that that makes them a good lawyer or a good manager or a good boss. Or because they're good at what they manage, because of what they're measured at, they don't spend any time trying to get better at other things. So how to live more humbly, how to be present in the moment, how to listen, how to give feedback, all of those sorts of things are skills that because they're rarely measured on the compensation review at the end of the year, get built on, supported, taught, uh, or corrected. So that wasn't a great answer to your question, but it's, a, it's tough, especially in this world, because it's such a hard place to be for many, because they're not asked to be there. I was going to say, I'm, I'm, I'm a little depressed after that answer. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but the best firms focus on this, right? Because they know that especially when you think about talent. And, and I don't see too many firms measuring the cost of losing talent or not getting it in the first place. But it's hundreds of thousands of dollars per miss, right? Someone who comes in for a couple of years. And so we think about why should we spend time learning how to give and receive feedback better, right? And the measurement is if I've got a thousand lawyers and I've got to give them an hour of training, which isn't enough, on feedback, and they're billing a thousand dollars an hour, how does that even make sense financially for us? Because you're not tracking and measuring because we're going to lose 50 fewer lawyers over the next three years, right? Because we're going to build a place where people want to work, where we're going to think about the ways that we deliver work. We pay attention to otherwise marginalized populations. We think about equity, diversity, and inclusion in everything we do. And we think diversity, I believe, is fundamentally a talent strategy and inclusion is a culture strategy. And we assign people with power to engage with those. But it's hard work. Again, it gets to the point I made by, with Wilford Brimley. It's super hard work to do this stuff well. And you're coming at it from scratch in most cases because firms haven't built that into their culture, their training models, et cetera. So I didn't, that didn't make you happier, Greg, but at least that's some of the challenge. <laughs> there are people out there doing it well. No, no. I just, this isn't about making Greg happy. No, it, it never is. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Hey, Matt, I wanted to go back and talk about storytelling. Sure. Um, what's, what is the benefit of learning how to tell a story? I mean, I think that from the beginning of time, people have communicated, shared, learned, grown to engage with one another through telling stories. And so it, it is something that is at once both fundamentally part of our brains and the way that we engage with the outside world, but is also something that feels like it should be natural and I don't need to learn it. Mm. 
one of the things that we find, and, and this, this gets to all of these challenges, is that our brains can't help but fill in the blanks between the beginning of a story and the end of a story, right? If I say this happens and then over here this happens, our brains automatically fill in the blanks. And if we're a pessimist, uh, if we're in a bad mood, if we're angry, that story that we tell ourselves and share with others is a horror story, is at best a farce, uh, dripping with sarcasm and so on and so forth. It's all, And there's not a ton of people like, ooh, this happened and this happened, and so it's all going to be great, right? We all work with a couple of those people. Right. So part of the storytelling isn't just learning how to tell a story. It's how to tell stories more often. It's how to go from here to here with a story here and here and here and here to eliminate many of those gaps that otherwise people fill in themselves or at least narrow them. And so when we think about stories, it's not just being good at telling stories because lawyers think they are a lot and many of them are incredible at it. But it's understanding what story to tell, to whom I need to tell it, how often I need to tell it. And, how, and what the first sentence of every chapter is versus the, it was the best of times and the worst of times, and then the end. The end. Because that's what we didn't do. <laughs> so tell us about one of the learning sessions that you do there at uh, Filament, where you talk about making an unreasonable request. And it kind of reminds me of the, there's a TED Talk out there from, and I think it's uh, Jaya Zhang, uh, where he would ask strangers for things for every day for a hundred days so that he could learn to take rejection. Um, I don't know if you've seen that, but I have. tell us about the what you do when you make an unreasonable request. I have a friend who, and she told the story years ago and it's, it's been really profound to me. She makes an unreasonable request five days a week. It could be a friend, a colleague, a family member, a complete stranger. And the way that she phrases it, and we've now nuanced this a bit to fit for our work, but you know, I, Greg, I have an unreasonable request for you. I'm asking you not because I think you'll say yes. In fact, I totally expect you to say no. I'm asking just so I get better at asking for things. Gotcha. And if you have an unreasonable request for me, I'll probably say no too. And so by giving it that sort of framing, you've given people a story, you've given them permission to say no. And really the purpose of unreasonable requests isn't to get more things. It's just to get better at asking for things and to learn I think from a human nature standpoint, that people are willing to help. Yeah. We tend to judge the likelihood of someone saying yes to us through the lens of how hard it would be to do ourselves. And we also often fear the idea that now if they give us something that would be world-changing for us, we have to give them something of equal value in return, and we can't because we don't think we can give them anything that is, that is of, of comparable value. Mm. And so... We'll do in our meetings uh, at the end of retreats, this idea of everyone makes unreasonable requests and also makes an extraordinary offer. And the extraordinary offer is here's something I'm willing to do for this room, disconnected with my request. And what will happen nearly always is half of those unreasonable requests, someone will say, I can help you with that, or I'll do that for you, or let me introduce you to someone who can, and so on and so dot, 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 so on right. and so forth. And the extraordinary offers make people cry. They're like, oh my goodness, this person is willing to do this for me. I would have never even thought to ask. And so using that framework is a really powerful way to, quite frankly, understand what people are willing to do for you, but to revisit the lens of things that you're willing to do for others as well. Well, I tell the people I work with that if you don't ask, the answer is always no. That's right. Hey, one of the other things you do is this thing called the newsletter Monday morning meeting. Mm -hmm. uh, what is that about? It is where my itch that I now can, I'm able to scratch that used to, that used to be blogging. Uh, so I still consume a ton of blogs. I read a lot of books. I don't listen to podcasts as much as I want to just because my commute is fairly short. Uh, 
But this idea that a Monday morning meeting for us is, is how do I share some of those really cool things we found? So every Monday, uh, and we're now 25 or 30 weeks in a row on this, it feels like. I give, send a newsletter out as a little bit of filament news. It's not very preachy or salesy, though a lot of people who get it are our are, are customers or who have been here. We're now starting to share a tool we use. Uh, this week, I just shared this idea of the five futures, which is a strategy planning exercise that we use. Though I send PDFs of the exercise, a little bit of description, how it works. And then just kind of the cool things I've found in the past week. So they're, they tend to be around organizations, around meetings, uh, how to collaborate better, those sorts of things. But it has been a really fun exercise to do because I now know that it makes me share more and write more than I had been. Mm. Uh, and it is the exact same thing that my old blog, The Non-Billable Hour, was. People say, oh man, how do you write all this blog? I like, most of my blogging is a sentence of, wow, this is something I found cool. <laughs> a paragraph or two completely with an attribution quoted from someone else. And then a final sentence of, and here's how you might use this if you're a lawyer. And that's it. Yeah. Uh, so this is a, a similar version of that, but I'm surprised at how impactful it's been to others because I think, again, my the brain I'm in is my own. Like, oh, everybody looks at this stuff and sees this stuff. And the truth of it's not shareable on Facebook, people generally won't see it. So we try to fill in those gaps. There, there was another thing that I saw where you talk about a, a quote, thinking day. What is a thinking day? We, I don't know about it. Uh, I like, I don't know where it's still, we experiment with everything here. So, um, <laughs> We're looking at two versions of it. One is just to take a day where you don't beat yourself up for not doing work, right? It's a chance to be out and whether it's walking through the park or going to a museum or just sitting in your office and not sitting in front of your computer screen, just to think about some things from time to time. It's even better if you have kind of a propelling question, even if it just sits with you all day and you're not actively trying to answer it, how might we do X, Y, or Z? But the other thing that we've been really trying to work on here at Filament is that when we have open days, we'd love for people to come work with us. So part of our thinking day, we're calling it Filament Fridays. And it's not going to be every Friday. I love alliteration if you can't tell. Right. <laughs> uh, it's not going to be every Friday. But when we've got an open gap on the calendar, we'll throw in a newsletter. Uh, and then if people want to work with us, we've got a really cool space here. They can hang out. And the only thing we ask them to give in exchange is an hour or so of their day to pitch what they're working on to offer help to others. So it's a little bit of a co-working with a purpose, but not something that we would do. We don't want to be a co-working space, but there's not a lot of community around people working on new ideas. Mm -hmm. So how do we effectuate that and give something back, especially bringing in some nonprofits who might be doing cool things that they'd like a little bit of insight on. Sounds, sounds like a lot of fun. And, and I like the, uh, the alliteration as well. <laughs> well. Well, Matt, I appreciate you taking the time to talk with us today. This has been very insightful. Matt, thank you very much. I totally enjoyed it. I'm glad we finally got together on this. All right. Well, good luck to the Blues. Let's go Blues. Play Gloria. So Marlene, I know I'm starting to compile my binder of strategy today. <laughs> And I'm going to put it on the shelf. I am too. This is so funny. Because <laughs> it's like they're real. They're real. I, I, I just want to put one out there with just some some blank pages in it just to see if somebody steals it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> top, right, top secret on it too. Absolutely. <laughs> not, not to be disseminated exactly. outside of the firm. Put that in. That, that, that will work. But seriously, there was one part that uh, Matt talked about that really resonated with me. And he mentioned that uh, equity, diversity, and inclusion, they are included in everything that they do. 
part that really stuck with me was that inclusion is a culture strategy and diversity is a talent strategy. I love that. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. I want to write that on the top of every meeting agenda I have with my senior management team or the partners at my firm. Yeah. I mean, what he says is absolutely true. Uh, I've read and heard in person over and over and over from clients that they understand a diverse team reaps better results and better reflects their values. And they're specifically looking for this and making decisions based on it. All right. So thanks, Matt, for giving us that idea. So, But on that note, Marlene, let's jump into our information inspirations. So I'm going to kick this one off and you probably won't be surprised that I'm going to be pointing out the last episode of Make Me Smart with Kai Rizdahl and Molly Wood. Well, at least you're not pointing out the latest episode of Reply All that mm-hmm. that, ta- that talks about curse words. <laughs> yeah, I, actually, I thought you might use that one. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I'm not, I, I, not going to use it, but uh, hey, anybody out there who wants to, to get a good laugh, Power words. That's all I'm saying. (laughs) So the Make Me Smart episode talked about the 26 words in Section 230 of the Communication Decency Act of 1996 and how that has allowed the free flow of content on platforms like Facebook, Google, Twitter, all the social media sites. So they had this great discussion about that. So check it out. But the one part that really stood out to me was when Molly went on a total rant about how private companies and even the U.S. government are just not taking privacy as seriously as they should. The latest was a breach of facial recognition data from U.S. Customs. And I know you and I had to come through Customs on our way back from Europe. Mm -hmm. And so you stood on the X and they took a picture of you. That data was hacked. Great. So great. Great, great. But with data like facial recognition and DNA data residing in unsecured databases, remember, this is stuff you can't change like you can a password. So this, this is very serious. And the punishment for not securing our personal data is minuscule. Mm-hmm. So, so Molly got really, really mad. And she made me really, really mad about it. So let's get mad together, everybody, and listen to this latest Make Me Smart podcast. So in the same vein, I am seeing more reporting on data privacy regulation in the states. So California, as you know, has the California Consumer Privacy Act, which takes effect in 2020. But Nevada has quietly passed an amendment to its privacy laws that requires an opt-out right for data sales of customer information. That goes into effect this year. And I read just a couple of days ago that New York introduced a privacy bill last month which is reported to be tougher than California's, requiring businesses to put customer privacy rights before their own profits. Now, I I don't know exactly what that means, but it sounds really good. (laughs) Sounds sounds good on paper. (laughs) It does, it does. And, you know, I was thinking New York's a really popular place to incorporate, so it will be very interesting to see how businesses react if this is passed. Okay, let's let's move on to. Uh, Are you in the some, dark place? Are you in the dark? I am. Okay, I am. All right, let's <laughs> let's get out of the dark place. Get out of the dark place. So, so I saw this great quote for, in a report from Case Text in their special report on evaluating and adopting legal technology in 2019. 
And here's the quote. It went, it is critical to be in touch with your users and understand what tech will help them deliver legal services to clients. So you want to know who wrote that, Marlene? Who wrote that? You did. Oh, I thought it sounded familiar. (laughs) In the report, you even touch on the shiny object theme that uh, Matt Homan mentioned earlier. So it's like you have your finger on the pulse of technology, uh, legal technology, Marlene. (laughs) I have mad skills, Greg. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. (laughs) So the Case Text special report is available for a free download. I'll put the link and everything else that we mentioned in the show notes. And I will say that that the report is really good and has a bunch of, of people that have given their thoughts in in the area of adoption of legal technology. And it really is a good read, lots of practical information there. So I do encourage everybody to take a look. My second inspiration comes from a visit from an old friend from library school, Lynn Hinkernell. She is an award-winning singer-songwriter that tours the country. And she has a number of CDs, MP3s, whatever you get, get hers. They're targeted to kids, but I love them too. Uh, note to parents of young kids out there, these are kids' songs that you can tolerate. <laughs> uh, not, not the wheels on the bus. <laughs> <laughs> 10,000 times. <laughs> she also has a podcast called The Good Words Podcast, which I also recommend for your kids. Now, Lynn's done several career changes to get to this one that she loves. And whenever I see her, I always get re-inspired about focusing on following your bliss and living life purposefully every day. We had an excellent discussion over Rosé about how sell-by labels are deceiving and also about editing and sound quality. <laughs> I know. <laughs> it's so, so random. <laughs> she, she and I could have that, that conversation. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and, and we both agree that people get way too crazy about podcast sound. Even the professional podcasts out there have sound issues. And NPR, we're looking at you. And Greg? Yes. That wraps up this week's Information Inspirations. Well, Marlene, it's good to be back home and doing another podcast, but I'm glad to be sleeping in my own bed again. Mm -hmm. I want to thank uh, Matt Homan from Filament for talking with us today. And also remember that you can contact us anytime by tweeting us at at GayBauerM or at Glambert, or you can call the Geek & Review hotline at 713- 487-7270 and leave us a message. We'd love to hear some ideas you'd like us to cover in future episodes. And let us know if flipping the inspiration and interview is something you'd like us to keep or go back to our old ways. Do you do you want to skew the vote on that? Do you want to give me your thoughts? Ah. You no, know, I, I, I'm still thinking about it. I'm still thinking about it. We'll see how it goes this week. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And as always, the great music that you hear on the podcast comes to us from Jerry David DeSica. So thanks again, Jerry. Thank you, Jerry. All right. Bye, Marlene. Bye, Greg. <laughs>